Okay, good day. This is our Christmas part of the album, and you can play this at your Christmas parties uh, or to yourself on Christmas Eve if there's nothing else to do. Good day, eh? Yeah. In case you thought, like, I wasn't on this part. Oh, I guarantee you, you'd be on. Okay, so good day. This is the Christmas part, and we're going to tell you what to get uh, your true love for Christmas. <laughs> Look out the window. Where? <laughs> what are you doing? Snow. What? Oh, it's a great white north. And it's snowing because it's Christmas time. Hey. Eventually, Super Train episode 162. I am your main host, Dan. This is a short-lived TV show podcast that covers those short-lived shows and never got enough love. Eventually, we will cover Super Train. This is our last episode of 2023. We will be back in February 2024 with three shows going. Sort of, kind of. De- definitely, we will, but there's, there's something else going on here. But, uh, yeah, now we got three segments in this episode. Uh, I just want to say thank you to a couple of our listeners uh, from across the year. I want to say thank you, Shannon, as always. I haven't chatted with you in a while, but uh, maybe soon. Uh, thank you to uh, Stan, as always. Uh, very cool. Thank you to uh, Baby Die. Miss ya. Thank you to Beth. I hear you calling. All right. Thank you to Tristan. Thank you to, uh, I got the HLW. Thank you so much. And others, uh, but those are, those are some of the main ones, some of the main listeners we've had over the time. And uh, I just I just want to throw out a couple little thanks. I never do that, so I thought maybe now's the time to do that. So, uh, yeah, they, what are we doing in this episode? We are starting off with episode 10 of Monster Squad, uh, where I will be talking the episode The Skull, and then Mr. Tim S. Turner, who's also a listener. So I guess I'll thank him to Tim Miss you too. When are you going to be back on the show? Oh, about a half an hour? Talk to you then. Uh, um, uh, Tim will be talking the season one, episode six, the last episode of season one of Max Headroom, which is The Blanks. And then I will be doing um, a closing segment just talking about something rather Christmassy. End of the year. Holidays are going. You know I love Christmas. I always like to throw in an extra Christmas something. So that's that for you. So let us dive right in, shall we? Monster Squad. Monster Squad episode 10, The Skull. I do wish there was a Christmas episode of Monster Squad, but uh, it being a horror show, or a horror kid show, uh... Closest we get is maybe a Halloween-like episode. Well, I will say this. We, this isn't a Christmas episode, airing November 13th, 1976, written by Roy Cameraman, who I believe co-wrote the previous episode, directed by Herman Hoffman, who did quite a number of Batmans. This isn't a uh, holiday episode, but it kind of is, because it's, it's Frank's uh, birthday. Frank celebrates his birthday, and they, they have a huge green candle on top of a cake that he, he blows the cake and the candle across the... Um, the room and then he blows it out again and every time he does it sort of the lights go down in the area and the lights are going down because the skull master criminal who looks kind of a bit like um uh sort of an in um, a more goth evil version of one of the observers from uh mystery science theater 3000 the sci-fi era uh, the, uh, the skull and his sidekick bluetooth who is kind of a really dumb i think kind of hunchbacky guy uh, with uh, blue teeth in the front, uh, they're raising up a mummy named King Toot to steal uh, the Selma Diamond, uh, which is worth $10 million, and do all sorts of other things. And you need lots and lots of electricity, and he's draining all the electricity in the area. 
and uh, well, here, here, let, let, let me do this. Um, before we get to the cast and everything, let me play you a clip here. This is um, right at the beginning. They're sitting around uh, Frank's birthday cake, and uh, he's really excited because he's about to blow out the candle. <laughs> I wish that everybody in the world could be as happy as I am right now. And I wish that there would be peace everywhere and that nobody would ever need the Monster Squad again. It's a great wish, Frank. And remember, during that birthday party scene, they all have fun little birthday hats, you know, the triangular hats with the elastic cord around their neck. So it's pretty amusing. And we, we cut from then to the skull in his lab. And he's there, like I said, with Bluetooth. And they've got this big mummy uh, named uh, King Toot. And uh, the, the skull basically describes his plan. They've got like a... It's, it's, it's very much like he, he's raising the Frankenstein monster, basically. He's using a lot of electricity to bring it back to life. But here is Bluetooth and the skull. Bluetooth is the one who sounds a little dumb. Oh, no, Bluetooth doesn't have a hump. He just walks a little weird. Um, kind of keeled over slightly, like kind of uh, crooked. Um, and the, the skull is the one who talks with a bit of an accent. So uh, listen to this. I've never seen a band-aid this long. You must have been in some accident. You fool, he's a mummy. You mean she's a mummy, you idiot. This is King Tut, who's 3,000 years old. When he died, they wrapped him in a bandage and made him a mummy. That's the electrode there. Right here on the mummy tummy? <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Have a care, Bluetooth, or you'll end up on this slab yourself. I wouldn't like that. This man was a genius. He is considered to be the father of modern crime. You mean the mummy of modern crime. Here, uh, and menaced millions of people. Where else could that happen but in America? Egypt. Well, Egypt, a lot of people, I guess. Ignore that pun, but only because you are so pitiful. Thanks, boss. Now, I will bring King Tut back to life. And then I will bring back to life all of the arch villains of history. I will create an army of the most evil men that ever lived. All dead people? All dead people. Think of it, Bluetooth. Attila the Hunt, Alexander the Great, Jack the Ripper, Adolf the Hitler. All the oldies <laughs> but baddies. But first, we must bring him back to life. How are you going to do that, Skull? Mr. Skull, do you? But think of the rewards, Bluetooth. I'll be the ruler of the world. Because my army can't be killed, and you know why? Because uh, all the other armies are lousy shots. No. My soldiers can't be killed because they are already dead. King Toot is brought back to life. He steals the Selma Diamond. He has a fight with uh, a gentleman in a uh, well I'll, I'll, I'll talk about him in a moment but he steals the Selma diamond which is a big diamond and uh, Frank is able to track down where the skull is and is actually knocked unconscious by the skull and put on the electrical table thing and uh, you, you, my final song but I'm going to play for you here is Frank has been strapped to this table and it's very much like a um, 
Frankenstein monster table and they begin to zap uh, electricity through him and we basically cut from the skull and Bluetooth and the mummy sort of watching Frank and then and then you see Frank kind of shaking when the electricity is going through him and then it cuts back to uh, the three guys watching and Bluetooth is still watching the mummy I believe is still standing there but now the skull is kind of reading a book sitting on a stool eating an apple and so it's a very funny cut but this is this is that uh, uh, minute or so after that and remember Frank is getting zapped with all kind of electricity on the table as these guys watch say Mr. Skull how long does it take a guy to depart on this table seconds or maybe a little longer depending on how much he sweats the better the contact, the faster he goes. Well, Frankenstein must be using one heck of an antiperspirant. What are you talking about? It don't seem to be doing anything to him. What? See? He's smiling. You dummy, that's rigamortis. Better known as the death grin. <laughs> well, it seems to be spreading to his hands. His whole rigor seems to be mortizing. I haven't felt this good in years. Oh, heavens. He's got enough electricity in him to finish ten men. Finish me? I get a charge out of it. Put the juice to me, Goose. Quick, pull the reverse switch. Reverse, reverse, parrot. That's a no-no. Yeah, obviously there's a big brawl, which is a little sort of more violent than the usual big brawls uh, they kind of have. And what, what uh, Drac is referencing there is that there's a big, big, huge jar of blood that is kind of IVing into Frank, and Dracula gets excited when he sees it. And, but uh, yeah, the, and they have the big fight, which is a bit more, like I said, a bit more uh, violent than usual. The skull takes off running. Uh, uh, Bruce the werewolf goes after him, and they meet up in a graveyard uh, set, and uh, which looks a lot like the graveyard set from the climax of Zombie Nightmare. And uh, the uh, the skull is defeated. He has a silver bullet, but because this is Saturday morning cartoon, he doesn't have a gun. He has to throw it at Bruce, which doesn't seem fully. Um, uh, workable, but I, I guess maybe if, if just touching silver, he's got to be careful, right, Bruce, when he's using silverware and stuff. In case you know, he gets real silver, he could be in trouble. But uh, yeah, he's going to throw throw a bullet at him, and, and Bruce ends up defeating him, and, and they uh, they save the day, and they end up unwrapping the mummy, and there's nothing inside. And so when they're sitting back in the wax museum, they're all kind of getting scared by like, you know, there was something inside this mummy. Now we just have a pile of bandages. Could it be here? And they all get a little freaked out. But that's the skull, and I will say this: that um, I don't know if, why, for some reason, the skull. Um, this I think this is one of the uh, best episodes that they did. It's funny throughout. It's got it's got it's got a better pace, and part of that comes from uh, m most of the episodes sort of have the the bad guy does something, and then the monster squad finds them 
and then most of the episode is sort of either like one of the monster squad being captured and the others going after him da 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 and a lot of running around and goofing and they end up in that that huge um glass uh, cage or case or whatever it is and this one it's weird you can tell the glass cage case thing is there but they put like this power board in front of it with all these switches that the skull is using so it's um it's there but it's not there and so they can't put anyone into it which is nice this one is structured a bit differently because when the power's going out they really don't know what's going on they lose access to the crime computer uh, um, they have to uh, Walt has to get on a like a exercise bike and and use uh, you know foot power to get it going and they're still trying to celebrate Frank's birthday and they're using the candle from the cake to light everything and meanwhile the mummy's being brought to life and sent to steal the diamond and so it, it just um it uh, there, there's more sort of setup for it, and you see more of the and as as you heard too, the skull is going to bring all sorts of criminals and terrible people back to life, and uh, there's it uh, it all has a nice kind of um, uh, uh, wonderful. It, it has a lot of setup, so so Frank doesn't actually arrive until over halfway into the episode, so the, so there's less kind of crazy aimless running around, and I guess what I'm saying is the story is better structured than all the ones that have come before it. It, it isn't something where they immediately, um, the crime computer shows them something and immediately they're there and it's happening. This one is much, uh, is, uh, is, is kind of framed nicer. And, and two, it's, is lucky because uh, Jeffrey Lewis is excellent as the skull. He's got a nice sort of bit of dry humor and Bluetooth is actually pretty funny. He's dumb, but he's pretty funny. So they make a fun, they make a fun uh, sort of couple. And there are a lot of fun references like this, the Selma Diamond and they're going down to Lois Lane. Um, I don't. I I doubt this is where Bluetooth comes from. Obviously, I know what you think. Oh, Bluetooth. Yeah, we 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 use Bluetooth today. No, no, no. This was nineteen seventy six. Um, the, when I think Bluetooth, circa this time, uh, I I sort of have think that there was um, my my favorite radio show. Well, one of my two or three favorite radio shows, old time old time radio shows, is uh, Vic and Sade, which ran from what thirty two to forty. I've talked about it before, but in it, you I don't think you ever meet the character, but one of Rush's uh, the son, the son in the, in the show, one of his best friends is a character named uh, they call him Bluetooth. Where's Bluetooth? Have you seen Bluetooth? Bluetooth called, and so um, I'm wondering if that was a vacancy. It could be a vacancy reference. I mean, like uh, you know, um, Green Acres ten years before had a vacancy reference, so so it wasn't an unknown thing in the mid '60s. Maybe in the in the mid '70s. I'm I'm and and the fact that this was you know directed by someone and, and co-created by someone who was writing around the time of Green, a of Green Acres, you know, with Batman. Definitely, Bluetooth definitely could be a Vic and Sade reference. Just kind of a fun thing, like give someone a Bluetooth. We don't think Bluetooth had blue teeth, but we're going to give them Bluetooth, blue teeth. So I like that. I think that's a lot of fun. And um, that's just me, though. Um, so like I said, yeah, the skull looks a bit like an evil observer. King Toot is a mix of... Uh, the Mummy from The Mummy and the Curse of the Jackal, or The Curse of the Jackal and the Mummy, I forget what it is, that weird film from the late 60s with Anthony Isley, which was apparently never finished, uh, made from the same company that did Riding a Pink Car and Dracula the Dirty Old Man. Uh, you could, It's only on VHS at the moment. It's not very good. It looks like it was shot scope, and so the framing of the um, Spiffany's Jewelry Store, that's where Selma Diamond is, um, and uh, they're... Uh, the, the framing of Mummy the Curse of the Jackal is awful, but but the mummy looks like uh, kind of the mummy in that one. The mummy also looks like the Yeti from, what was it, Halloween Havoc 1995? Is it the WCW? I forget, there was there was a 90s we, uh, wrestling league that had, what was it, like the Dungeon of Doom? And they had this thing called, the, they that they, they um, for several weeks, they kind of... Um, uh, 
uh, hyped it like something's trapped in this ice. And then during the big Halloween Havoc show, which I believe you can see complete on Peacock, um, while Hulk Hogan is up on stage doing his big battle, the ice breaks open. This giant mummy called the Yeti breaks out and attacks Hulk Hogan. Feel free to look it up. The Yeti attacks Hulk Hogan on YouTube. It's very amusing, but but this mummy sort of looks like that. It's kind of cheap cheap wrapping, and it's not <laughs> not great looking. Um, he uh, and he just kind of goes around and and beats up the uh, security guard at the um, at Spiffany's and steals the diamond and gets in a gets in a fight with some of the guys. But never, he's never really too much of a problem. But he is a mummy though, so he is another monster, and that's cool. Let me just give you the cast real quick. It is uh, yeah, like I said, Jeffrey Lewis is the skull, Nathan Jung. I imagine it's not pronounced Young. Nathan Jung played King Fu, Kung Fui, King Fui, who is the security guard, and he was in a ton of stuff from around this period. I I know him from. He's one of the he's one of the big um, uh, tough guys in Klan's army in Fistful of Yen in the in Kentucky Fried Movie. Uh, Peter Zapp is Bluetooth. Patrick Campbell is the store manager. And Pete Kellett is King Toot. Uh, yeah. So overall, I mean, I I could go. I could go through like a list of, of great uh, entertaining moments in here. I mean, I love the fact too that at the no, normally the way the episode ends, yeah, is they have the big brawl and then it's all over. But in this one, they have the big brawl and the skull escapes. There's a final scene in a graveyard, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, now, I will say this: I, I don't know if this if this means something, um, but the the skull. You, you know, I've told you. I mean, pr- pretty much, I would imagine, right, that the. Um, no, this just occurred to me. I'm sorry. I'm going to finish a finish a, a sentence in a moment. But you know, normally what we usually have the two main sets in an episode. We have the wax museum set, which presumably was set up there and and is a rather large set. And then we have the sort of rather dinkier, closed in sort of hideout set that the villains use, which is pretty much the same from episode to episode. Then occasionally we'll have that sort of entrance to the building set. But in in this one we have. Yeah, we have the wax museum set, we have the graveyard set, and we have the space where the 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 villains are. But the thing with the space the villains are is that when you see the is is the weird thing is that the space where the villain is, there are three spots that are where where the sarcophagus is and the mummy is on on one of them in the end there are three spots that look like the pedestals that the guys are that the monsters are on when they're in the wax museum and the doorway that frank enters through in a very amusing scene uh and the wall around it looks like the doorway in the wax museum and suddenly you realize and i don't know if this is completely true but and you do see the invisible man again the wax museum figure the invisible man behind them which is just basically like um uh, a suit with no no hands and no head um but 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 uh regardless of that um it's it's funny then then at that point when you kind of see the doorway and the the wall the stone brick the stone wall you suddenly realize that the uh, the skull set is just inside the wax museum set they just built it inside the wax museum set so really all they're using in this is the wax museum set that brief scene on a very small graveyard set which i would bet you cash money was probably from another something else but maybe not but but i'm wondering if i'm wondering if it's it's funny because my first thought is so wait a minute does that mean that all the other times they've had um, bad guy hideout sets they've just sort of built them within 
the, yeah, look, I'm looking at those three pedestals. They're more or less exactly the same. I'm sorry, the, the credits are rolling here. And it's more or less exact. I mean, they, they got the crime computer out of there and they just put the, the setup in sort of that main space of the the thing using the pedestals in the background. Wait a minute. Here's here's a here we go. Here we go. I'm gonna check something real quick right here and this will be the giveaway. Yep. Look when they when they go to unwrap the mummy. When they go to unwrap the mummy and you see there's a coffin on one pedestal, a sarcophagus on another and a mummy on the other. This is about twenty two minutes in look in between the pedestals there are sort of tinsel and light covered um, columns uh, with torches on them and then if you go into the wax museum itself you'll see that yep it's the exact same columns with the torches they just cover them with like tinsel and lights so so it is so the skulls hideout is the wax museum set which makes me think that all the hideouts have probably been the Wax Museum set, and they probably gave them this one space and a soundstage. Maybe it's a full soundstage. I don't know. I mean, the Wax Museum set isn't huge, but it is pretty big, with the um, with the with the uh, with the steps up in the back and everything. So there is, I guess, every good chance that, um, yeah, every single um, uh, cr- criminal uh, hideout has been in here. Now, some of them are larger than others, so maybe not every single one, but some of them, the Ultra Witch and the Wizards might have, right? Those aren't too large. They could have fit them into these spaces. And just sort of, hmm, I wonder. That's that's interesting because, like I said, clearly the Skulls hideout is within the Wax Museum. I wonder how many of the other hideouts have just been built within the Wax Museum rather than maybe, maybe they didn't have access to another set or they didn't have the money to build on in another space. Uh, uh, a soundstage or space, so they just they just built within what they already had set up. But then it's it's interesting then because that would if if this was maybe the only one where they've done this, maybe if the other hideouts were on separate sets, not in this space, it does make sense that they do something with the graveyard because then they're just using they they shoot all the scenes in the wax museum they set up the 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 skull space within the wax museum using parts of the wax museum as his hideout they shoot there and then they're like hey you know we got a couple extra bucks let's add an ending where the skull escapes and we've got this this wonderfully chintzy ed wood style graveyard set let's shoot a scene in there because that does make sense because they don't normally do that right that the villain doesn't normally get away the villain normally gets caught right there and that's the end of the episode but this has that extra scene why does it has that have that extra scene because maybe they had some extra money or they just like hey you're not using this set we have for you i'll throw up a cheapy graveyard and we'll throw in an extra scene i like that and and if that is so i would i would gladly say that they should have used and maybe like i said maybe they did they should have used the wax museum set for the the hideout set if they could add an extra i mean maybe the episodes where you see like ultra witch for example where you see the facade the store facade or the entrance to the uh, um, the the place where the kids are, you know, where the carnival, the ringmaster is, that that entrance way, you know, where the cookie place is in, in Ultra Witch, a cookie place. Uh, maybe that's like a set they put up when they're using like the wax. Maybe they get access. I don't know. I'm making this up. Like access. So you have this set and you have this set, and 
it, when they need three sets, they put up the hideout in the wax museum and then they use another another set. But then this one, it's only the great graveyard scene is only like two minutes, but it's a fun little ending to it. And there's a fun fight scene where they both fall into the grave and the camera just sits there as like one of them flies up out of the grave and goes in and the other flies up out of the grave and goes and it's um it's all it's all very fun. I I do like maybe the concept that that concept. Um, but overall, it's not it's not something you really notice until you watch it multiple times because um, the Monster Squad is really fun in this. And there's obviously I said the, the the big through line of Frank it being his birthday. And as you heard when when they strap Frank to the table, and they think they're electrocuting him, but they're actually making him super strong is great. And it's just it's just a super fun. Ep- I mean, I don't know. I I kind of almost half think that uh that this might be a good one to show people first off i mean the ultra witch is fun too with julie newmar um but the only thing with that one is that um it's it's cool because it's julie newmar doing the ultra witch and so if you don't know who julie newmar is you might see that you might you might turn someone off who's like boy that's a little weird uh whereas this the skull is just kind of he's kind of fun and you don't need to know who he is you you might look at him and go i think i know who that is but you don't need to know who that is and bluetooth's fun and there's, there's a mummy and you get the, like i said the selma diamond joke the lois lane joke um you get the monsters you don't get a shot of the monster van i don't think in this one but uh you, you just get a fun kind of funny actually funny entertaining episode yes that that music in the opening scene with um frank's birthday is a little cloying and you can't really tell um or at least i can't tell from multiple viewings whether that's meant to be a joke on what frank is saying or um whether he's deadly serious and the music is deadly serious i kind of think they're serious because this is a kid's show and i don't think they would do something like that but it might it might be on it might be a it might be a steely dan thing you know where steely dan was making some of the best cheese ball soft rock of the 70s but it was also pretty um like a subversive lyric wise at the same time so yeah it's it's a, it's just a fun episode i'm gonna stop talking about it i think this, this is one of my favorite episodes we've had a nice run now of episodes we really have um and uh, we, we only have three left and i'm trying to think about the next one i honestly don't completely remember what's uh what the next one is um okay the next one is the weatherman to be honest i don't fully remember it i know i know the one after it i quite like and i think the last one i quite like but uh, the weatherman i don't quite remember but as i've said before you know the it it really does feel like they they put like the kind of the least of the episodes they're not bad the least of the episodes at the start and it's getting better as it goes because you can remember if the show was shown over the course of 52 weeks and they show the entire run four times it's only during this first run that we sort of would have it, it would have been anything like we're watching it now because after the first one when the repeat started people would either be seeing them a second time or maybe just like missing them and seeing them completely out of order and there'd be no order to it it's only the first time that sort of the order matters and it's in a show like this I mean obviously if we were watching something that was serialized that that wouldn't be true but yeah this is just a it's just a fun episode i just want to talk about jeffrey lewis real quick and then then i will go um will the uh will this be the end of this episode well you're gonna have to keep listening to find out don't look ahead at how much time is left because i'm about to talk about jeffrey lewis for 30 to 40 minutes maybe i'm kidding so yeah jeffrey lewis you know him when you see him he was in a ton of stuff um he was actually i was looking at his credits here it's like um 
he, he did a few things in the early 70s, but his credits really begin like in 1970 and pretty much went, I mean, he did stuff up until almost when he died in 2015. He was always doing something, appearing in something. And, oh my gosh, that's right, he was in Tythonus, the great um, X-Files episode. What is that, season, is that season six? Season six, oh, that's a great episode. Yeah, he's in that one. Wow, he was in a ton of stuff. So I'm just going just gonna to roll back, just tell you some of the things he was in. You'll know him when you see him, and you can kind of, when you're looking at him, you'll be kind of like, mm, this guy looks familiar to me. So his sort of regular career began with then came Bronson in a Bonanza, High Chaparral, Young Lawyers. Oh, he was in a Dan August. That's a short-lived show that I wouldn't mind covering on here someday. They with um, House on Green Apple Road was the precursor TV movie with Christopher George, and then Burton Reynolds took over the Dan August character. That's out on on a, a decent DVD from VEI. And it was in tons of stuff here. The Culpepper Cattle Company. Oh, yeah, Moon of the Wolf. That's right, he played Lawrence in Moon of the Wolf. Gosh, Moon of the Wolf available... Um, I think it's still available from Vinegar Syndrome on um, on Blu-ray with a commentary from uh, film historian and author Amanda Reyes and really great guy Dan Budnick. That's me, not the award-winning photographer. Canon Mod Squad. Oh, what canon was he? Oh, he's in two canons. Two different characters. Okay, to kill a guinea pig. I'm going to check that out. Canon's Kung Fu, High, Pla- High Plains Drifter. Yes, he was in several... Um, Bronco Billy. He was in several uh, Clint Eastwood films. Dillinger... Uh, the Honky Tonk, The Waltons, The Great Ice Ripoff, Waldo Pepper, The Great Waldo Pepper, A Swat, Smile, Starsky and Hutch, of course, Streets of San Francisco, Harry O, what Harry O was he on? Mayday from season two, I'll check that out. Lucky Lady, The Rookies, Return of a Man Called Horse, I know what you're saying, Dan, all you're doing is reading this IMDb thing, yeah, you're damn right. Uh, Alice, uh, Monster Squad, of course, McLeod, Arc 2, Six Million Dollar Man, of course, the Deadly Triangle fun. Oh my gosh, so much stuff. Oh yeah, and of course, of course, he was in one of the main characters in the Flow uh, spinoff, and he was the character Orville, um, uh, the uh, Clint Eastwood's character's brother in the huge hits Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can. Two films I saw about a thousand times when I was a kid on HBO, but have not seen them since. I am. Um, I, I think I loved them when I was a kid. I think I actually preferred Any Which Way You Can. I think that it was one of those things where, like, uh, just because of when we got HBO, like, for example, like, I watched Airplane 2 about a dozen times before I watched Airplane. So Airplane for a while, I never quite liked as much as Airplane 2 because part of me was like, Air, this movie just rips off jokes from Airplane 2. But Airplane 2 is pretty amusing, too, I think I've said before. But yeah, Any Which Way You Can, I think I probably watched half a dozen times before I watched um Every Which Way But Loose. And um, I'd actually like to go back and rewatch them just to see sort of... The thing is, the Clyde thing, the orangutan, makes me uh, unhappy when I read about what happened with him. So that kind of has kept me away from it. But of course, you know, I love BJ and the Bear. So kind of watching these two movies might be um, a good thing. So uh, what else? He was in a movie called Tilt with Brooke Shields playing a pinball wizard. I would like to see that. Oh, that's right. He was in A Man Called Sloan. He was in Human Experiments. Dr. Hans Arklan. Yes, Salem's Lot. BJ, he wasn't a BJ in the Bear. He was in Siege in season two where a bunch of uh, like um, uh, jerks take uh, uh, over the country comfort. They're doing like a Miss Trucker contest and um, they they take everyone hostage and BJ uh, he he's the, he plays the guy um, what is the character John Kirk who basically kidnaps BJ and makes him drive to an undisclosed location to do something or other oh he's in Heaven's Gate yeah like Flow twenty nine episodes of Flow I the jury oh gosh 
Tender Midnight, A Return of the Man from Uncle, Mama's Family. He was only in two episodes of Mama's Family. And what's weird, I don't see him in an episode of Dukes of Hazard. You think he would be, right? Yellow Rose, that was, that's a fun thing. Yellow Rose is a um, Dallas-style primetime soap opera, sort of, that uh, only ran for one season. And I, I've watched it, and it's fun, and I kind of like to do it. He was in Less Than the Dust, Falcon Crest. He was just in Stitches, the movie Stitches, Fall Guy. A couple episodes of Magnum P.I., a couple episodes of A-Team. Yeah, he, he was in Dallas the early years, that great uh, three-hour TV movie. MacGyver, he was just in everything. Matt, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stop now. Webster, oh gosh, Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Flesh Lives, Pink Cadillac. Yeah, he was in a bunch of those. Oh gosh, yeah, tons of stuff. Like I said, he was in Point of No Return. Like I said, X Files. Wow, he was in. I think he was in a Bigfoot. He it was like Bigfoot Five, the last of the Bigfoot. Oh, I'm sorry, Six Million Dollar Man Bigfoot episode. He was also. I think he was the head bad scientist in Night of the Comet, the Joel Eberhardt film from the mid '80s. And I'm a I'm I'm a big fan of Joel Eberhardt's Without a Clue, and I quite like Soul Survivor. And the weird thing is, I've I've owned Night of the Comet on Blu-ray for about three or four years. I never saw it when I was a kid. I've never, still, still, I've never, have still never seen it. That's not right. That would mean I've still seen it. I still have never seen it. I've never still seen it. But I have it on Blu-ray right here. Maybe I'll watch it today. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, he was in four episodes of Murder, Shoot. He was in tons of stuff. Trilogy, I'm going to stop talking. But yeah, Jeffrey Lewis, great actor in tons of stuff. You know him. And in this one, he plays a very silly, goofy, it's funny because, the great thing is Bluetooth is kind of dumb, but never over-the-top dumb. Just He looks over-the-top, but he's not quite over-the-top. And the skull isn't uh, quite as camp as some of the other villains have been on here. So he's kind of like, kind of one of the most interesting villains on here because he keeps it calm. And uh, I quite like it. So... Uh, yeah, that's 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 this, everyone. Uh, um, let's uh, continue or not continue our Christmas episode with this. Headroom Season 1, Episode 6, The Blanks, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, written by Steve Roberts, May 5th, 1987. Again, thank you, Wikipedia. I'm just going to read it off of this because there's a lot of stuff going on, and this is the simplest. To whoever wrote this on Wikipedia, I thank you. May you have a happy holiday. Simon Peller, Network 23's political representative, is elected to government and cracks down on the blanks, people who have removed their identities from the central databanks. A militant blank named Bruno threatens to use a powerful virus program to wipe out the city's entire computer network and everything connected to it, including Max. Carter looks to Blank, Reg, and Dominique once again for help in dealing with Bruno as Bryce works on a Trojan sheep to reverse the situation. A situation that becomes deadly as a demolition charge is found on the van of big-time television. Listen to this. Tim S. Turner is on the other side with me. The Blanks. Last episode of Season 1 of Max Headroom. I have here with me at this festive holiday time, Mr. Tim S. Whoa, I got no beat at all there. Tim S. Turner. Tim, how are you, sir? Well, uh, you know, I'm doing great. And uh, I'm doing great because I feel safer with my Goodrich Safety Silvertown tires with the Lifesaver tread. 
<laughs> he's the best. He's the best, isn't he, ladies and gentlemen? Um, now, uh, so so we're we're gonna hop into this episode, uh, and, but I, I want to say to you, so this episode is going up right before Christmas. I celebrate Christmas. I believe Sim, Tim's Sim. Tim, <laughs> that's my. I was gonna say Tim S. Turner, and it became just Sim. Sim I, got, I always have a little diamond floating over my head. <laughs> so I believe Tim celebrates Christmas, and so uh, last time we left you hanging with um, what, what did you leave us hanging with? Ham? Uh, well, yeah, it was a uh, corn chowder with ham as one of the sides. Oh my gosh! Now I, I have told him if if he doesn't mind telling us what menu he's making up for himself, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's family for Christmas. Uh, I also told him though that he can lie. So Tim. <laughs> What do you think? What are you making? Well, I, you know, I thought I would, uh, you know, change things up by actually telling the actual menu. Um, <laughs> nice. I, I am doing a uh, a ham with a uh, brown sugar bourbon uh, glaze on it, uh, mashed potatoes, gravy, um, uh, a mushroom leek galette, and um, I don't know, probably. Uh, Get some pie or something for dessert. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> whatever they got sitting, whatever, whatever, whatever's at the bottom of the pile. Exactly. Whatever Marie Calendar has that. Ooh, beetroot. Is beetroot a good <laughs> yeah. pie? Does that make a good pie? I don't know if I've had beetroot. Ugh. Oh yeah, is it not good? Not a fan of beets. Uh, oh, I'm, oh yeah, true. You know what's funny is 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 beetroot's one of those things where it never occurred to me in my life until right now that beetroot and beets are related. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought really? that was just the name, beetroot, you know, just just because it has the word beet in it. It has the word root. In it. Well, I know it's like a root, isn't it? I don't know. Wow. We're learning a lot about how dumb Dan is this holiday season. Well, uh, my grandmother had a, uh, a a garden with beets, so, she, you know, we can say that we got the beet. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I am these are the so kind of, sorry. These are the kind of holiday jokes you're not going to get on other podcasts, everyone. Plus, you're also probably not going to get anyone talking about The Blanks, the sixth episode of Max Headroom, which I would like to know what Sim thinks. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think another, uh, you know, above average episode. Not uh, not the greatest one, but I mean, I, I, I do think it's pretty good. Um it's interesting because again, now we're finding out more about the blanks than we knew before. Really, before it was just kind of you, you knew about uh, Blank Reg and Dominique, and, and you know, and you'd see occasional like homeless people sitting in it next yes. to fire pits watching TV. Uh, so you know, we get a little more into that, and to find out that I mean, they're basically all considered criminals. That this. Uh, a candidate for, I guess, for mayor, because uh, they never really established if he's yeah, supposed to be a, a yeah. mayor or a governor or what he is, uh, but he wants them all rounded up and arrested and incarcerated forever, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I thought that, I thought it was pretty interesting. I liked that guy. He really kind of had kind of a uh, like a Kurt Fuller mm, yeah. uh, feel to him. Uh, I w- and, and I wish we could have gotten more of him, um, not just in this episode, but in the series. Uh, I, I like the idea of everything is corrupt. Yes. And like like uh, Max and Murray and Theora are like the only like beacon of uh, you know hope that's in there. Um, but yeah, I, I wish we. I think the one drawback to the episode I see is that I wish we'd gotten more of him. 
Mm-hmm. And because uh, we only see him in a couple of scenes, really, mm-hmm. just, you know, being smarmy. Um, <laughs> and then, like, his right-hand man guy, I swear to God, it reminded me of uh, the uh, the producer from Murphy Brown. Oh, sure, yeah. I could have sworn it, it was the same actor, and I looked it up. I was like, nope, nope, it's not. Uh, I I thought it was. I mean, they're they're both like the, the little short guys with the yeah. dark hair and uh, the mullet kind of hair. And and it's funny. I have them on here now. They almost look like they're, um, they almost look like they could be alien or something. Like yeah. From, from from V or something like that. Like they're gonna burst out through there. No, they're just uh, it's just a rotten politician and his aide. But they still look like they they look alien. Like ah, they're gonna eat a mouse or something. Well, yeah, the, the Sherman Howard, who plays Simon Peller, he has got a very odd face. He does, and the eyes are just... They're so widely spread apart yes. and, um, and, you know, like kind of squinty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he's definitely one of those actors that you look at and you're like, yeah, he's going to go in the villain pile mm-hmm. that we'll select from in the yes. next episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I liked the episode. I, the, the only, um, the only drawback I had with it was that there were sort of moments in it that kind of reminded me slightly of the previous episode with sort of like, yeah, because another... they're both about terrorism in a way. Yeah. Yeah. An- another terrorist group. Except in the previous one, they wanted to blow things up and, and get advertising revenue. And in this one, they want to, um, uh, sh- basically shut everything down, all the TVs and everything down and, and, and free the blanks as it were. And so that, that was the only thing because there's a point when you see the, um, you don't see the face of the, um, the, the head terrorist guy sitting at his computer and on all the monitors, but you see like his frog. Yes. And, and I'm like, huh. And I thought, frog. Yeah. Yeah. I thought there, there's, um, um, there's an episode of Dr. Who from a couple of years ago called it takes you away where, yes, um, yes. Uh, which is about which is about this being that's trying to it's it's actually a little tough to explain but but who's ca- kind of not quite in our universe and is trying to become part of our universe and is is sort of um uh, 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 uh trying to to to, to cr- create its own its own little pocket universe that the doctor and friends and some other people get trapped in and at one point in order to sort of um it becomes a frog to talk to the doctor and so there's this right. really wonderfully weird scene where the doctor is in this strange sort of empty space talking to this talking frog on a pedestal that's this incredibly powerful being from another universe who kind of just not maybe not i i forget it's not like the the being doesn't quite want friends but the being wants like to be to actually properly be and it's become a frog and so for a moment when i saw the frog i thought oh is this something like that like is the frog <laughs> is the frog running everything no not really the frog is just a pet for the guy and um, they they do do a, a nice job d- during during the scenes where like all of his cohorts come up on the screens. Um, they're all pretty much sort of looking at him more or less, and you feel like you feel like they're engaged in a conversation with him more or less, rather than they're just a bunch of you know other cameras have been fed into screens and people yeah. don't know where they're looking and stuff. It feels like maybe maybe like I don't know like the first Skype call or something like that. You know, it's a little awkward <laughs> yeah. looking, but but it, but it sort of works and um that was really I I I like the um I like the Peller character and and the way he um and and the way he he when he's talking I if I I forget who's talking with um where he 
you know, he's talking about, well, your opponent, uh, something about your opponent, eh, my opponent and I decided who was going to win weeks ago. Yeah, that's when he's talking to Chevy. Yeah. Yes, Chevy. Yeah, and and so so, so so some really really nice stuff in it. I like the I like the concept of the blanks. I like I like the expansion of that sort of uh, world. I like the fact that the blank we see in the beginning, like she has her own place. You know, she's not like like blank Reg, who you know who is is traveling in his little little beat up uh, uh, you know uh, mobile home. Um, yeah, you know, or he's not like all the homeless people you see. She actually, she is, she is a blank, but she, she's until they come after her. Uh, she, she looks like she's able to live a life, probably just by laying really low and just not, um, uh, uh, hoping that that no one likes like Peller comes after her. But she just, I mean, she just basically the blanks are just people who don't want to be hooked up to watching the TV all the time, who don't want to be hooked into the this computer world. And um, I guess we missed that train, Tim. Um, yeah. Who don't want to be hooked up into this computer world, and who just sort of want to be outside of it. And um, and and I like the fact, like I said, that this gives more to them than just you're either homeless or you're on the run in a mobile home. <laughs> you know, you you can actually. It looks like she's the the woman in the beginning. It looks like she's living like a regular life. Yeah, the thing that's weird with that is that we. We see her. She gets arrested, and they take her into this weird. I guess it's supposed to be a courtroom. Yes. And there's just a computer there. Yeah. And they feed her information into it, and it just goes guilty, and they just drag her away, and it's yeah. like and you never hear from her again. <laughs> and it's it, yeah, it's 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 weird because I want to say like the same sort of like computer font or something like that is maybe used later on when like the terrorists send their. Um, little thing where they say, you know, we're going to take out the TVs or something. I don't know if that means anything, but I, I just, like, this slow crawl across the screen, you know, and then da-da-da, prosecution and defendant rest. Guilty. And you're like, what? And they, <laughs> I don't, you know, I I, I hate to say it, but it, but it looked to me like like a guy was just, like, putting in, like, a disc. And then it was yeah. just saying that. And I thought, I, you know, I'd ask for a retrial on those discs. Because <laughs> I don't know so much about that. You know, I would have rather had... Uh, all I could think of at that moment, I thought I was thinking of. Um, well, first off, I was thinking of like the network executives in Futurama, who are all robots. Yeah. And you know the one who who prides himself on the fact that he once um, put out a, a sitcom with the laugh track on it that didn't have a single joke in it, which I think, which I think <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I, I think I, I've seen that episode, and I, I think it may have been Donna Reed. But don't quote me on that. Yeah. I'm kidding to the Donna Reed fans. <laughs> I could have said that to several sitcoms from around there. Probably my three sons actually would be closer. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, now I forget what I was saying. I, was, I suddenly, I suddenly <laughs> thought I wouldn't mind. I, actually, I suddenly thought, does Donna Reed have a Christmas episode? Huh. Oh, I'm sure they do. Sure like every you, season, it was on forever. You know what's surprising? I don't think my three sons does. Really? You, you don't I, think Uncle Charlie dressed up as uh, I, Santa or something like that? I'm going to have to look again because uh, um, about 10 years ago, I tried to watch My Three Sons from the beginning, and I didn't make it very far. But at that time, only like the first two seasons were out. So I, I did the first season, and then I got into the second, and I bought like a bootleg set of the rest of them. <laughs> and that, that was a lot of discs, as you, it's 12 seasons. Yeah. Um, and I still have them. Um but I remember the first season as a Thanksgiving, but not a Christmas. 
Um, this is holiday talk, folks, because it's, it's, we're almost at Christmas. Um, uh, but but I, I remember, and I might need to look again, but I remember scanning ahead like on Wikipedia through the seasons going, okay, what seasons are the Christmas episodes? I'd like to watch them. Then getting to the end and thinking, there wasn't a single Christmas episode in the entire 12 years? Like Ozzy and Harry had like 30 of them, and they only had 14 seasons. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I so think in, the best Christmas the, episode that I ever saw was probably on uh, I'm Dick and C's Fenster. Oh, I'd like to see that now. I'm just I, I've kidding. Never I've never that seen one. it. I know. I, oh, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Holmes, uh, the Holmes and Yo-Yo Thanksgiving episode was really yes. something to see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these are shows we'll be covering in later years, folks. So yes, just hang so let's on. pull more obscure sitcoms out of here. <laughs> hang on. If, if I could find a way to expand the show and do like five or six segments at one time, in one episode, I would. But boy, that'd be a lot of work, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, my God. Three, three is tough enough. Uh, so anyways... Um, what else do we have? They said, yeah, yeah. I think, I think overall, I like the episode. Um, again, I, I, I don't love the episode, but um, it, it would be like if, like last time I did a rating, it was three and a half, five. This one would be cl- a little closer to four, but maybe not quite four, but closer to. F- I like this a little bit more than the <laughs> previous one, um, but I don't know. I, I think what they should have done. I think they should have spaced the episodes out because they're both kind of about terrorism. Yes. Um, and that kind of. It does lend, especially like when for the you know for doing this, watching them back to back, it's kind of like oh, it's terrorists again. Okay. Yeah. Um, now this this one does have the added thing of them them uh, in order to distract or to find the location of the terrorists, they send Max onto yes. like I guess the web or whatever it is, uh, whatever it was called on Max. So so this guy on the other end will find it, see it, and kind of bring Max in, and they can like trace Max so they can find out where this guy is. And I like that because that gave it sort of an extra bit of like story that the previous one was lacking a little. Like th- this one, this one I, I um, uh, apart from moments when I thought, mm, this seems a little familiar after the previous one, I, I didn't have moment, really any moments, in, I don't think, any moments in this where I really thought like the last one where I think we're repeating ourselves. Well, I thought I, this one yeah. was a little more packed with with stuff. Yeah, I think um, I think what sets it above the previous one is we get uh, more of Blank Reg and uh, oh, yes, Dominique, no, and yeah. which are really fun characters. And yeah. uh, he's got a great line. Uh, well, it's not his his line. It's uh, I guess it's on his big time TV uh, uh, little promo. It's uh, from from sunrise to sunset. Filling your mind with dreck. Yes. <laughs> and he says it with pride. Yeah. And uh, I, I love that line. But, um, yeah, you get, you know, Reg comes through as like a big hero at the end. He was real willing to sacrifice himself, you know, to maybe get blown up possibly. Yeah. And, and Theora and, and, and Edison almost kiss. Yes. Yes, they do. And then, um, well, you'll see what happens in the next yes. season. But, um, oh. yes. So, yeah, yeah, they almost kiss, and then they suddenly remember that they left Reg, like, standing on top of the trailer trying to stop a bomb from going off. Yeah, oh, and they have to go. Yeah, yeah, I think the bomb, the bomb at that point has been stopped, and they need to tell Reg that he's okay to stop. But, um, but I, I mean, like, uh, yeah, overall, like, um, I, I think you're right. I, um, 
I think you know. I, I hate to say. I, I, oh, and uh, Janie Crane or Jamie Crane is back in this episode. Yes. So she was in the previous one, so she's here. I almost, I almost want to say that maybe they should have taken that raking or fraking or whatever that episode that was <laughs> that we really like and thrown it in between War and the Blanks. Uh, yeah. I mean, why not? Yeah, I mean, because because that one maybe that one would have been better if it if it were. Because one of the reasons why that one kind of is eh, is because I think well one it's it's not that great but but two it sort of comes right after the first one which is quite good and then and so maybe maybe like put it in between these two that were sort of similar maybe it would have made it better or maybe it would have made blanks just a little put some distance in between them with the different terrorists yeah I kind of do a little shuffling yeah yeah um, I, mean, I, do, yeah. I do like this one that that the terrorist group though is is they're trying to free another group of people in the society rather than trying to make the money. I like this. It's a very different sort of right. ethos behind the group. Um, uh, but but there, there is there is a similarity that unfortunately does stick out. Now, this episode does have Bryce's fly camera. Yes. And it does yes, have uh... Bryce inventing something. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, like an early Photoshop or something like that. Well, I was going to say that's um... – it, it, there's a lot of uh, stuff in it that's kind of like what we're the, the problems we're having right now with AI, you know, where you can manipulate an image and edit the the dialogue and everything and make it sound like someone's saying one thing instead of another. Yes. And we get that, you know, with the villain. Um, that's the way they nail the villain at the end, actually. Yeah. Um, and it is kind of an odd episode if you really think about it because they want to destroy, you know, all the computers – which you know would erase everyone's identities, mm-hmm. and in doing so, it would take down all television. Yeah. And so, really, what you're looking at is Edison is fighting to keep the status quo of television. Yes. In yeah. charge, which uh-huh. is kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird because yeah, he's fi- fighting for the blanks, but then also at 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 the base level, he's fighting for keeping his job. So he doesn't become. He's seen what happened. I mean, remember what a few episodes ago when they um, when they wiped his credit rating or whatever, right? Yeah, and how bad that got. I mean, imagine that. You know, becoming a blank. If it's worse than that, oh my goodness, because that that was that was life ending for him. He lost his hair. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, and we got uh, another uh, appearance. Uh. By uh, Sonny Trinidad as the head of the Zigzag Corporation. Mm. Oh yes, yeah. And yeah. I, I, by the way, I love his name. His name is Pedexing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't know if they ever say it, but I mean it's in the credits, and it's like Pedexing is his freaking name. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, every time they show him at like uh, on the big screen talking to Cheviot, um, you you get this real uh. Blofeld Specter feel yes. with Zigzag. Uh-huh. This is horrible, yeah. evil co- a corporation that makes yeah. burgers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, um, last thing I can think of uh, when you see Edison in his apartment and he turns the TV off, his remote control is a little red car. Oh, is it? I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, it's a little red car with a button on top. Nice. <laughs> and he pushes it and it turns the TV up. Um, oh, also, when Max comes back to Network 23, Bryce hugs the monitor. Oh, yes, that's right. And, uh, Which I Mac, thought was a Max, great little moment. Max gets a little freaked out. <laughs> yeah, he's got a look on his face like, ah. Doesn't he say something like, Bryce just kissed me or something like yeah. that? <laughs> 
it's I mean I think it's a it's it's um it's a it's it's kind of a nice spot to sort of and I don't know if they knew they were getting more episodes at this point um but uh I I'm, I was hoping they I was hoping they I I would hope they would have known um but but it is kind of a nice spot to sort of end this chapter and because now we got the blanks, we get a little more behind blank reg. We get to see, we got even more now of how this, this world works. And, um, you know, we got a new season coming up. There are only eight episodes, but hey, eight episodes is more than the show ending right now. I remember at the time, because I watched this show first run, and I remember thinking, like, oh, they're going to cancel it. Because at the time... I don't know if they do it anymore, but USA Today would weekly would po- post the weekly ratings yes. and the and the rankings of everything. Yeah, and every week I would look at it, and I would watch Max go lower and lower, lower and lower, yeah. and I was like, oh, God, it's going to get canceled. And then they renewed it, and I yes. was blown away. <laughs> yeah, it was like when they, re- when they renewed Sledgehammer for yes, its second season exactly. like what they gave it we got another 19 episodes of Sledgehammer that we didn't think we'd get and yeah and that, that was yeah, I remember that that would always be so depressing because sometimes TV Guide I guess if they didn't have room they'd give you like the top 20 and the bottom 10 yeah and if like you like me or a fan of short lived TV shows yeah you know you're watching how did Shadow Chase 109 huh uh, I didn't know there were that many shows on TV. You know, I don't know if it was 100. It may have been like 79 or something like that. But it was just like such a distressing number. Oh, I know, because you knew, looking at uh, that, you're like, oh, well, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. How long is this going to last? And and it was like, I, I would get the TV guide, you know, on the Friday or Saturday before the next week, and you'd crack it open like, is it still going to be there? Is Oh, phew. We got another week of it. Oh, good. Thank goodness. But then if it was gone, you're like, you know, my mom would say, Dan, come out of your room. And I'd say, I can't. They, they cancel Shadow Chasers, you know. It's like, have you ever seen that Late Night with David Letterman sketch with the little boy who's very sad? Yes. And it's because Manimal got canceled. Yes. And so Dave sits down with him and discusses the cancellation of television shows. That's, that's yeah, that's kind of. Uh, but we still have eight more episodes. That's a great thing, folks. So many of these shows. Well, we haven't had a lot so far that have, have gone after six. Um, Police Squad, Beyond Westworld. Yes. Maybe one or two others. But but so we get eight more episodes, and we and it's actually a new season. So they're coming back, sort of like they've had time to think. They and and hopefully it'll be exciting and and wonderful. And and before we wrap this up, I'll just ask one more. Do you have anything else on this one? Because I think apart from them making sheep noises for about thirty seconds, yeah, uh, I don't think hilarious. I, which is very funny. I don't think I have anything else on this one. Uh, I, I don't think so either. Um, mm, yeah, no, I don't think so. Okay, so um, so I, I guess we kind of have discussed it, but now that we're finishing season one, I, 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 I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Just very briefly, a uh, hundred words or less, just your thoughts on season one. Uh, I think that one, season two, one... three, four, five. I'm sorry, am I counting too? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's that's more of that holiday comedy you're getting. I'm going to mute myself for the next wah, hundred wah. words. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the, the first season of Max was um, it was so unique to television at that time, and I think even if you watched it now, you know, if it was a new show, you'd still be like, this is not typical network tv fair which is probably why it only lasted 14 episodes uh actually 13 because the 14th wasn't even aired um 
Um, I, I think we have our our core of uh, main characters, and they're all a lot of fun. And um, I think the show is actually shot on like a high grade of video and not film, which gives it a different look. And I think they use yeah. that a lot because of the um, that it it is based out around a news format. I think that's why they did that uh, for that look. But um, I, I think it's a really wonderful show, and I, I wish it had lasted longer. Um, I mean, we do get eight more, which is great. Uh, but it, it's really kind of a shame that it's a show that I think is largely forgotten. And I, yeah, I'll say, yeah, I, I've quite enjoyed. I mean, the, you know, that that the the raking episode or whatever that the heck that was, I wasn't too thrilled with that, and that did worry me a little. But as I've said many times on here before. Um, if you get a first episode that's very much like a pilot and a setup, don't don't put too much credence in the second episode because a lot of times, for some whatever reason, the second episode will be a bit of a, a bit of a drop in quality. I don't know why that is, and I'm sure we could talk about it for hours. I've only got 78 more seconds before I have to celebrate Christmas, so I'll just <laughs> say I'm enjoying the show. I'm 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 very excited to see what is going to happen next. So, Mister. Tim S. Turner, or Sim, as I now call you. <laughs> Where can we find you online? Sim Sim Salabim. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can find me on uh, Beauty, the Beast, and the Bees. We're a uh, genre film podcast uh, with my co-host Kelly Hogaboom and I. We're going to be covering some holiday uh, horror with Thanksgiving, and it's a wonderful knife. All right, so... Uh... Uh, happy holidays to everyone out there. Um, uh, uh, Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate. I hope you have a, you you and your girlfriend, your girlfriend's uh, parents have a really lovely uh, Christmas, Tim, Sim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, hopefully you, you get to, you get to have a nice relaxing uh, Christmas at home as well. I, I, I'm hoping to, yeah. And um, we will be back. I always take, I take January off, so there will be no episodes for January 2024, but we will be back at the start of February with Monster Squad, a brand new old show, and no Max Headroom because I take an episode off in between seasons, but Sim will be back in the second half of February <laughs> with season two, episode one. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we hope you had a good year, and here's looking forward to 2024. Ho, 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 ho! I can't think of anything that's dumber. To a grouch, Christmas is a bummer. Beaming faces everywhere, happiness is in the air. I'm telling you, it isn't fair. Happy holidays, everyone. Welcome to the third and final segment of the final episode of 2023 of Eventually Super Train. This is going to be me talking for no more than a half an hour. So if, if, if you're not interested in the topic, you might, you might want to stop here. Happy holidays. This is going to be Christmas related. So Merry Christmas. And I'm going to be talking uh, one of my favorite uh, Christmas specials, a Christmas special I first saw probably in the vicinity of when it aired, uh, which was December 3rd, 1978. And that would be Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, which aired on uh, in Rochester, New York, on the local PBS station, WXXI, Channel 21, and uh, 78. So this would have been, I think, a few months before this is when they would have got uh, Doctor Who, which uh, the first four Tom Baker seasons, which would have been airing. Uh, now, I've got a nice cup of coffee. I'm recording this on December 17th, late morning, and... Um, 
I do have a neighbor who's doing some sort of some crap in his backyard and occasionally there might be a little pounding or a drilling or something like that uh, so hopefully that that doesn't that doesn't disturb I have the episode playing here the Christmas Eve on Sesame Street playing here uh, and yeah, Snuffleupagus is trying to get in the barrel, pretending he's Santa Claus getting the chimney. I don't know why they use Snuffleupagus. I guess that's part of the fun, right? Like Big Bird, you know, he's 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 a sweetheart, but he's not the the smartest. Uh, so yeah, Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. At this point, Sesame Street had been going for what about nine years? Started in 1969. Of course, it was quite popular. I was five when this aired. By the time I was five, I was reading at like. Um, well, I know when I was in kindergarten, I guess, was I in kindergarten around that time? When I was in kindergarten, I was reading at a sixth grade level. So what Sesame Street was teaching, a la letters and numbers and stuff, I was good. I was watching Electric Company. But even what Electric Company was teaching, I was far beyond. However, I enjoyed the shows. I was thinking it was kind of, I was watching like Electric Company and stuff and even even the sort of sketch ishness of some of Sesame Street I think I was looking for like shows like Monty Python's Flying Circus and stuff and I was I was you know catching that as as a kid in the way I you know could with Muppets and wacky sketches and and comedy bits here and there but uh, yeah in 78 I was five my sister was three and I'm fairly certain we watched this I don't know if we watched it when it aired on the Sunday December 3rd 1978 I always remember in late 70s like first half of the 80s watching it uh on christmas eve so i don't know maybe they they probably replayed it on christmas eve 1978 i don't know um we we also i'm going to be talking briefly in here at the end about uh something i didn't really actually know existed uh that aired on december 8th 1978 on cbs it's a special called a special sesame street christmas which is basically the uh, leslie uggam show set on the Sesame Street street and briefly in I like the counter in Mr. Hooper's store but basically on the street the cul-de-sac set we'll talk about that briefly because I had heard of it ages ago but never watched it until about 24 hours ago I can't say I'm glad that I watched it we'll get into that but anyways it's it's Christmas Eve on Sesame Street uh starring all the uh regular cast that you love and it's uh let's see it was uh written and directed by John Stone I think it was also written by Joseph A. Bailey uh, let's see, and yeah, it's, it features yeah Carol Spinney as Big Bird and Oscar, uh, Jim Henson as Kermit the Frog and Ernie, Frank Oz as Grover, Bert and Cookie Monster. Uh, let's see who else was in it. You got Linda, David, uh, Patty is the little girl in this one who um, uh, befriends, uh, spends most of her time with with Big Bird. You got Susan, Maria, Olivia, Gordon, Bob, uh, Mr. Hooper, of course. And uh, all all the regulars, it's it's a great sort of um, it's the the special because it aired on PBS. The special is about fifty eight minutes long, which is awesome, and it has an A plot. Well, actually, it's interesting. The first for the first fifteen minutes, with the exception of about a minute of Oscar asking Big Bird, "How do you think Santa gets down those chimneys?" For the first fifteen minutes, it it actually is cool because it's the Sesame Street crew having gotten on the subway in New York, got got on the subway in New York City, and they've gone to a local like ice skating rink. And the first fifteen minutes is just them having fun, ice skating, getting shown up by the local kids who ice skate much better, um, uh, goofing around. Uh, singing, riding back in the subway where they sing, they have a subway car to themselves where they're singing and apparently there were, you know, probably other other people who were like, don't go in that car, the Sesame Street people are there and they're singing again. And uh, the first 15 minutes is basically the wonderful sort of 
Um, something you don't see a lot in Christmas shows, just just sort of hanging out. Um, the the Muppets Christmas that would air later in the eighties were all like Fraggle Rock mixed with Sesame Street mixed with the Muppet Show. That does that in, like the last five or ten minutes where they're all sitting around Chris, singing Christmas carols. But at that point, it's sort of presented as the the end of a uh, sort of arduous get yourself to the cabin for celebration kind of thing. Here we open with 15 minutes of everyone just having fun and you get to see the Muppets outside of Sesame Street. You get to see the cast outside of Sesame Street. I've heard folks, my sister Allison, complain that it's kind of stupid and it's like she kind of stopped watching, watching everyone ice skating. I told her what I just said to you. I think part of it is, you know, seeing they they rarely leave the cul-de-sac area or their, their apartments or Mr. Hooper store, Big Bird's space or you know, wherever right there um, in the show. So to see, I mean, I think it's implied that, you know, most of the human cast work outside of Sesame Street and that's where their home is. They work in the city. But but I, I love that this is just the opening 15 minutes is them just out having fun and they go ice skating. And re, uh, keep in mind too, and I don't know if you noticed, my sister didn't know this, that when you see those full-size Sesame Street characters ice skating, that was part of a show called The Ice Follies that began... In the early 70s, around 73, 74, um, they started introducing these Sesame Street characters. So I'd like to think very much, I don't, part of me thinks the first 15 minutes is kind of an ad for the Ice Follies. Um, But I don't know, I don't remember seeing in the credits anything like, you know, hey, if you want to see them ice skating, go to the Ice Follies. To me, it's more of a... John Stone, the main writer, the director, the person who could see this. It's him basically saying, hey... We have these ice follies characters, these full length, full size characters who can skate around and have fun. Let's let's put a Christmas tree on the rink, and show everyone out there just having fun ice skating. That the characters can do some of their shtick, and we can just see them enjoying life outside of Sesame Street for the first quarter of this special. Then the remaining forty five minutes will be back on Sesame Street we'll be getting up to some Sesame Street chicanery and fun and that's why I love those first 15 minutes I think they they might seem weird to anyone who's not terribly familiar with Sesame Street and um you know and and might not like what the heck is going on and you know like how do you you know justify like when Oscar is thrown off of the ice rink and he's human sized and then he suddenly goes down the steps and when he lands outside of the ice rink on the curb and as a patty and and big bird pick him up suddenly he's like he's a muppet again uh how do you justify that well we don't we're having fun with it you know it's like um you know it's like the tardis and doctor who being dimensionally transcendental that just means the inside is bigger than the outside when they ice skate um, they're they're bigger, uh, may, or maybe that maybe that ice rink is smaller. I don't know. Um, Big Bird seems to be about the same size, like eight foot or whatever he is, but everyone else seems much larger. But then in general, when you see the other ones, right, skating like uh, uh, the Count and, and and Oscar and everything, I don't think you really do. You really see a lot of other humans with them. Well, I guess you do, because I was going to say maybe the implication is that um, if it's just the Muppets together. Maybe they're not as large as you think they are. Maybe it's just if everyone's that size, they just look larger. I don't know. Maybe they're on a different rink that's big. I don't know. But to me, I love the opening 15 minutes because it is just something you don't see often in shows. Uh, you see there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Simpsons 
episode is it miracle on evergreen terrace the one where bart burns down christmas the first like five or six minutes of that are just them having fun at christmas and like there isn't really a story or anything it's all regular christmas stuff until bart accidentally burns down the tree it's 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 fun i like that i just i like episodes that are about just hanging out at christmas without any sort of plot line or anything now granted yeah 15 minutes in uh we we do we have a plot a plot b plot c plot a is big bird trying to figure out how santa gets down the chimney being worried that it's not going to happen if they don't know how it happens and he with the help of patty kermit and grover talk to a bunch of kids there's a great scene with them where Kermit says, you know, who know, and I love Kermit. He's like the Mr. Drucker of the Muppet shows. He goes in between all of them. Uh, and Kermit is there just like, who knows more about Santa than anyone? Uh, his elves, uh, Mrs. Claus, uh, Macy's no kids. And they interview kids asking them how Santa gets down the chimney. And there's some great sort of, I guess, Vox Pops kind of thing where Grover and, and, and Kermit are talking to the kids, how does Santa get down the chimney? The kids don't seem too worried about it. They know how Santa gets down. It doesn't, it doesn't bother them that the Muppets don't know how this happens. I love the one kid who's, um, you know, try the back door. You know, oh, Santa can't get out. Uh, try the back door. The back door's locked. Take the window. And I always like that, take the window. I don't try, not try the window, not open the window, not use the window, take the window. I like that. Yeah, so you get that. And then in the end, of course, obviously what happens is Big Bird's decide he's going to find out. And late on Christmas Eve, during a blizzard, he goes up to the roof of the house where, um, I guess the 123 Sesame Street house, and he's going to sit on the roof and see how Santa gets down the chimney. And of course, then everyone gets worried about him because he's gone missing, so they go looking for him. And Oscar is pulled in to uh, assist, recruited, because he was the jerk who made this happen in the first place. Uh, the B-plot is is a gorgeous little plot, of um, which they replicated on a Christmas... I don't know if it's a Christmas Eve... It wasn't a Christmas Eve on Sesame Street album. My sister had it. It was a cassette that had just a bunch of... Sesame Street Christmas stuff on it and it included the audio probably a recreation of the audio of this but you know like in like like the early, like early Monty Python albums you know obviously before before VCRs if you missed the f- episode of the Flying Circus you, you you probably never saw it again unless they repeated it so the early Python albums uh, most of the Python albums would repeat sketches from the show and sometimes tweak them a little, change them around, add a swear word, add a little extra naughty or something like that. But that that's sort of there's there's that there's a Christmas there's a Christmas album that my sister had on cassette that was Sesame Street that had Bert and Ernie's uh, Christmas. And it's basically it's the gift of the Magi with Bert and Ernie. They don't have any money, and you know that Bert's favorite thing is his paperclip collection, and Ernie's favorite thing is Rubber Ducky, and Ernie trades Mr. Hooper rubber ducky for a cigar box to keep uh for Bert to keep his paperclip collection in and Bert trades his paperclip collection in to um uh for a soap dish to keep rubber ducky in because rubber ducky keeps slipping into the bath and Bert keeps sitting on him when he's trying to take a bath and they're go- they're lovely presents for each other but of course obviously the trade is gift of the magi but unlike gift of the magi where the couple learns how much they love each other through what they've done to get each other gifts and and the twist is that they- the twist is that they've done that and this the 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 twist is that mr hooper shows up as he's on the way to whatever it is he does at christmas or he he celebrates hanukkah and i i don't know in 78 when hanukkah was i apologize i didn't look it up um i should have um 
but uh, he he's making some stops, Christmas Eve stops, and he drops off gifts for Bert and Ernie, and the gifts are the soap dish and the paperclip collection. And there's just that wonderful thing with like, how did Mr. Hooper get your soap dish? Hey, you know, how did, how did Mr. Hooper get rubber ducky? You know, hey, don't worry about that, Bert. You open your gifts. You know, how to get your paperclip collection? Don't worry about that. And it's really kind of a lovely, it's really lovely. And then Bert and Ernie break into um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, um, which if around the same time was what? The um, John Denver and the Muppets Christmas special. I think is it Ralph the Dog and John Denver do a version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And it's lovely with the piano. They just sing and they, uh, Have yourself a merry little Christmas now. I'm sorry if I'd sung that louder. Um, I could have hit the harmony, the notes better, but I'm, I don't want to put this in the red. I don't want to put the audio in the red. But man, Christmas now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got to sing that louder. I, when I was younger, I could, I could hit the notes. Uh, but now if I'm going to hit those notes, I have to sing it louder. Um, anyway, yeah. And the C plot is just this lovely little thing where Cookie Monster keeps trying to uh, get in touch with Santa to tell him he wants cookies for Christmas. And he, uh, eats a pencil and paper and he eats a typewriter and he eats the phone but in the end he gets gifts and the episode actually ends with him having eaten the cr- big Sesame Street Christmas tree and as the final credits are playing you hear him talking and belching which is delightful so that's, so that's the basics of it the first 15 minutes yeah are, is, is them just enjoying it and the last 45 minutes are these three sort of plot lines that go on and and basically the plot the, the B and the C plot are resolved about 40-45 minutes in uh, and I'm just I'm actually, actually I'm on the part right now where, where Bird goes Big Bird goes up to the and it's about 40-46 minutes in he goes up to the 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 um, the uh, uh, the roof and so so for about a half an hour you jump in between the three plots and the last 15 minutes is basically um a big bird up there and to be honest i think it's gorgeously structured it's gorgeously put together um once you can catch the groove of the first 15 minutes and, and you see what they're doing and if you can't so be it i understand i would actually suggest that you hop to minute 15 i think at minute 50 i think at 50 at the 15 minute point you get an overhead shot of the street emptying out as everyone goes back into their homes. So um, I think it's gorgeously structured. John Stone was a heck, I was going to use a stronger word, but I didn't, heck of a writer. Everyone is really good in this. Um, there's, a, there's a real sense of joie de vivre and holiday excitement, a community that loves each other and loves being with each other in the first 15 minutes. And then when you get to like the half an hour later, the 45 minute point when there it's a blizzard and it's really cold and big birds hanging out with pigeons on the roof. And he's looking down and wondering what, who everyone's looking for. And they're all big bird, big bird. And they're looking for him. It's, it's so well done. And, and the Burton Ernie plot is so sweet. Mr. Hooper is so, so great. Just the, um, just the way he delivers some of the lines, just like think of now, bring a little tear to my, just like Ernie, your rubber ducky just just the way he delivers some of the lines and he's delivering them to like a cloth puppet you know or whatever the, the heck Bert and Ernie were made out of it just that moment when like I think Ernie is leaving and Bert comes in like oh hey Bert hi Ernie how are you doing and it's just it's so delightful and then seeing Cookie just not being able to constr- control himself at all it's just it's just beautifully done and you forget <laughs> I love to one of the things I love is that you know presumably Sesame Street, the sets in Sesame Street were built to accommodate the fact that one of our lead characters is an eight foot tall bird. 
So, uh, so his space is built for that, and, and like the street is built for that, and um, but the, but there's just something about whenever Bird is hanging out with Patty, Patty played by Debbie Chen. Patty is, I don't know, four foot tall. I'm really bad at age. I mean, Patty is, I don't know, she's ten, she's eleven, she's. Four, she's twenty three. I can't tell, but she's a little kid, and she's maybe like four foot tall. I feel like the doc, the doctor, Peter Capaldi's doctor. You know, like uh, when he can't tell how old Clara is in Last Christmas, or how good River Song looks in The Husbands of River Song. You look great, oh doctor. You have no idea how I look, and and I and I love that. You know, Patty is say maybe four foot tall. Big Bird is eight foot. So whenever they're in a shot together, they either have to have the camera way back to get both of them in the shot without cutting off Big Bird's head, or Big Bird has to be constantly leaning over, or they have to lift Patty up. And she's like, like there's a point, I think, where either Maria or Livia or someone is holding her, and I thought, she looks a little too big to hold like that. It, it reminds me a, a bit of the, um, actually a lot of the, uh, the Monster Squad episode we talked about a, f- a few um, uh, Adventure Super Train episodes back, The Wizard, um, where I forget his his sidekicks. I think are Mumbo and Jumbo, and the guy who plays Mumbo is clearly like six foot three, six foot four. The guy who plays Jumbo is maybe five foot three, five foot four. And so whenever they frame those two characters together, to um, and they have they have their names written on their shirts, like on their midriffs, to make sure that you can see both of their faces. Um, you 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 cut off the little guy like 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 right below his shoulders all the time almost all the time so you can't see what his shirt says throughout so unless you hear what the name of his shirt is and i think there's one shot where you can see the name on his shirt but because of the framing to keep the tall guy and the small guy in the frame at the same time you have to cut off a lot of the small guy to make and i i just kind of like that but you could tell i mean like when I, whenever I talk about happy days, you know, there are some shots where the, you know, Jerry Paris will have the camera pulled back to keep everyone in shot. Where in the background you could see the top of the set because of the way he's framing everything, and he's he's not doing straight on. He's doing some 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 sort of um, you know, uh, low angles, uh, uh, high you know, tilts up. Uh, sorry, I, <laughs> I uh, uh, but um, uh, but but yeah, it's it's interesting to that that I just I don't know I found that fascinating and and the scene where Snuffleupagus who's huge and as big as Big Bird bigger than Big Bird almost as tall as Big Bird you know is trying to get in the chimney thing and little little um little Patty is there is is so much fun you get some great songs in the episode I think all the songs I mean uh I I think the thing is Sesame Street is one of those few places sort of in the fictional world where if someone breaks into song it doesn't feel weird so when Bert and Ernie suddenly start singing have yourself a merry little Christmas it's sweet it's something the two friends do when Gordon reprises uh, at the end if that isn't a true blue miracle I don't know what one is it's exactly what you'd expect Gordon to do when they're leaving the skating rink and they all start singing it's exactly what you'd expect to do I mean I think this is for me this was the first spot where I ever heard the song Feliz Navidad when um uh, uh, a big bird is skating with the little girl, um, and they're they're doing some you know elaborate skating bits, and you think Big Bird might not be as bad a skater as he's acting like at the beginning of that, and uh, a lot of great songs, and um uh uh um what what's what's the one that Bob does for Linda with the sign language um 
oh, uh, keep Christmas with you. You know, and of course, Oscar singing I Hate Christmas. Great Christmas songs in here. And the great, the great thing about the Christmas songs in here is that they're not intrusive. They don't get in the way. Um, I mean, may, maybe the stopping to do the uh, Keep Christmas uh, With You for Linda. It's a sweet moment. It's a lovely moment. But that, that might be the one spot where it's like, it, where everything kind of slows down and stops. Because by that by the point that that happens, you're, you're getting into the other plot lines. Uh, but that is sweet to see, and you have the moment with the, doing the sign language for Linda and Bob and everything, and that's that's um, that's sweet stuff. And luckily, the songs are good. The songs are not the sort of songs you go, "Ugh, this this one." The songs are good, and they're, and they're fun. I realize I may go a little bit longer than a half an hour on this because there's so much. I mean, and like I haven't even talked about like watching it with my sister when I was young but there, there are just moments like there, there are moments here that are sort of indelibly stamped into my mind everyone's singing on the subway car I've, I've ridden the New York subway quite a few times and um, generally if someone starts singing on the subway car you get a mix of people paying attention to them and other people being like please stop singing and go in another car uh, so if folks had wanted it I mean I'm surprised you don't see like like Bob or, or, or someone like, like, um, or, or one of the Muppets, like, uh, you know, t- taking some cash from the other, uh, from the other subway people. But there doesn't seem to, they seem to be, they seem to be like at the end of the subway train on their own, in their own car, which is cool. Oh, that's the Sesame Street car. But th- there's that moment. And of course, I hate Christmas. Um, uh, Kermit uh, sitting with his cross legs on the uh, on the barrel and saying, "Well, let's look at this from another angle or whatever." He says, and then he crosses his legs and turns and says, "Hmm." Uh, Grover getting really sad when he's talking to the one kid. Is it Timmy or Jimmy, uh, the one that take the window kid? One of my all time favorite moments in anything. I think when I was a kid, still when I watch it, I think the next shot is going to be different, and that is the. Um, that is the moment where Bird's sitting up on the roof waiting for Santa. He falls asleep and the camera is, is focused on Big Bird. And then all of a sudden and you hear, I think you, do you hear the sleigh bells or something? I, I forgot, oh gosh, I, I suddenly blank out. But basically it's on Big Bird. Everything's quiet. And then all of a sudden a shadow passes over Big Bird's face and like stops over his, over his face. And then all of a sudden, Big Bird opens his eyes, and then it cuts to his point of view. He sees the roof, and it's empty. And it's and when I was a kid, I always loved that moment because one, it's like, oh my god, it's Santa! And then another thing, it was kind of slightly eerie, also. And like the music with like the chimes and the strings that that happen right after you, when you see the POV shot are kind of eerie. And I've always thought when I was a kid. Like, I, I, I seem to remember when I was a kid one year convincing myself that you do see Santa. When it cuts there, you do see Santa. But then when we watched again, like, oh, I guess you don't see Santa. So I think part of me was always kind of thinking that you do see Santa right there. And that maybe maybe there was an alternate cut where you see Santa just for a moment. Maybe you see the sleigh disappearing away or you see um, like a, like a, like a, a boot like Santa's boot, like a red fringe on his pants, Santa pants, you know, vanishing off screen or something. But you don't. I mean, the point is uh, that uh, whether or not Santa exists, metaphorically, he's a thing. And I think if if you celebrate Christmas, there isn't there isn't some part of you that believes in Santa in some variation. Not that 
you know, I I, th- I think there hits a point where you know you take on the Santa duties yourself, but that doesn't mean that Santa is no longer. I I think if, if I'm talking to you and you celebrate Christmas and you don't and you don't believe in Santa in any way, shape, or form, then I'm fairly certain if we were to continue to have discussions about life, about the way one should live their life. Uh, let's not even mention politics, although I just mentioned it right there. I'm fairly certain we'd have very different ideas about almost everything, because to me, um, to me, Santa appearing for a split second and then being gone—that's the way Santa works. That's the power of the Santa, as it were. So I love that moment, and another moment I've absolutely loved. I love the framing of the shot where Gordon and Patty step out of Gordon Olivia's apartment into the hallway and they're going to continue looking and then as they're talking and and Gordon's trying to keep a brave face and Patty's really sad uh, in the background you see Bird casually coming down the steps I always love the framing of that I always thought that was fantastically done and um, because because in the foreground there's sort of a oh my gosh where's Big Bird we're sad it's Christmas where'd he go and in the background Big Bird is resolving the whole issue not even realizing that there was an issue and I, I really like the way that's done. I see I'm almost at the half an hour mark, so I'm going to I'm gonna to try to speed it up as best as I can. But yeah, there's that, that that moment I really like. And obviously all the I love the Cookie Monster stuff. The Burton Ernie storyline is is something I adore. I also love during the I Hate Christmas, I love whatever gift that gift that that, that Oscar gives that's like full of oil or grease. I like the fact that the thought that maybe, you know, um, you know, it's implied that Oscar's trash can is like Snoopy's doghouse and like the TARDIS. It's dimensionally transcendental. And I like the fact that maybe um, that maybe Oscar has to um, get the oil changed on the uh, on the old trash can every once in a while. And he just, you know, the, the droppings from the previous oil change he just gave to someone as a gift. And the look on Mr. Hooper's face when he hangs up the Noel sign and Oscar pulls down the EL, the look that uh, Mr. Hooper gives it is pure vaudeville, and I love it. So there's so many wonderful moments in it. I love the way it's structured. I love the the way it tells the story. I love the fact that in the end, it doesn't matter how Santa gets down the chimney because the gifts get delivered. That's the point of it, right? It's like there is there is that mystical moment where someone is on the roof with Big Bird. The implication is it's Santa, but we don't know for certain. Who knows, you know, uh, who knows, you know, uh, who knows? But the implication is it's Santa. The implication is something a little mystical has happened there. But apart from that moment, everything else is sort of grounded in reality. And Santa did get there. And Santa did do what Santa does. And and in the end, everyone's happy. I do always wonder, like, with Bert and Ernie, do, like, Bert and Ernie have gifts under the tree? Because they have their own little tree and stuff. And they're exchanging their gifts together. I wonder if... I, I guess Santa probably leaves something for them, right? Uh, I'm, I'm actually forgetting what was underneath the tree. Uh, no, you do not see anything. I don't think you see anything for Bert and Ernie. The stockings are Bert and Ernie related, so they must be doing their own thing. But yeah, it's just it's just a, it's a wonderful episode. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do one thing real quick. I love one of the things I love about it is that in the next year or two, two of the um, the actresses on the show. Uh, Sonia Manzano who played Maria she would be one of the seven lady truckers 
on the two episodes second season premiere of BJ and the Bear, um, B, uh, BJ and the Seven Lady Truckers. She'd be one of them, and it's never sort of she's just one of the hot trucking lady truckers who gets into trouble. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fun it's a fun two part um, opener for BJ and the Bear, the second season of BJ and the Bear. Uh, the story's a bit confused, and, and you might find yourself thinking, okay, why is this happening on more than one occasion? But um, it's still pretty fun. And um, Linda Bove, Bova, who played Linda, is um, is uh, Allison in the seventh season Happy Days episode, Allison, where she plays a DMV employee that the Fonz falls for. And I discussed that heavily uh, just recently on my Happy Days podcast, Rockin' All Week With You, where it seems to be possibly like it's a critique of the way the Fonz is, been per- is perceived as like a love them and leave them kind of guy, which the Fonz really isn't. Prior to that Allison episode, the only gal we ever saw the Fonz getting serious about was um, Pinky Tuscadero. And they actually had a proper like monogamous romance that fell apart when Pinky went on the road and, and the Fonz couldn't sort of deal with it and and uh and and kind of thing but uh it's allison is an interesting episode that, that is kind of a critique of a gigolo-y type type thing which isn't quite what the Fonz is but but so she's on that so that's kind of cool to see the actresses uh appearing there uh so yeah the the episode is great my sister and i, I think yeah like i said i think we first watched it uh de- december um uh uh i i remember us us like late 70s in the early 80s probably uh yeah into like the mid 80s or so um uh, every they would show it every christmas eve and i want to say it was probably like 78 to 84 85 when they showed it on christmas eve and then at some point in the second half of the 80s they stopped showing it on christmas eve and you never quite knew when they were going to show it, but it didn't really matter because around eighty four, eighty five, we recorded it. So if they weren't showing it, we we had a copy to watch. But it was fun, and we would watch it. It was great. I I would I I want to say it would. It was Christmas Eve, uh, in the late seventies, first half of the eighties. We would go to, um, or at least Christmas Eve up until like eighty three, eighty four. We started going to my, no, no, Christmas Eve. We still went to my. Um, we we would go see my mom's family, and usually we would go to um, uh, my grandparents' house on Fairbanks Street in Rochester, New York, which is now not a very nice street, but back then was. I've I've said the story before. My mom and dad grew up apart, across the street from each other, so there were some holidays where we could leave one grandparent's house, cross the street, and go to another grandparent's house for a party. But Christmas Eve was specifically at, usually at my grandparent's house in the mid-80s. It got transferred to my Aunt Helen's house, and she lived in Churchville, which is like a half an hour drive away. Um, and so we would have to go pick up my grandmother and drive a half an hour. And it was it was still great, though, still still lovely. All the Christmas videos for my family are, are Aunt Helen's house for Christmas Eve. But yeah, we would go to a grandparent's house in the late 70s, 70s, first half of the 80s, and at some point, uh, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 6 p.m., 3 p.m., something like that, they would show Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. My sister and I would be super excited, we'd watch, we'd have a great time. And then, yeah, as the 80s went along, you know, we, I think, yeah, we, we recorded it, we had it on there, and I, I didn't watch it for quite some time, and then maybe 10, 15 years ago, I got the DVD whenever that came out, so I usually watch it myself. Rarely ever on Christmas Eve, uh, usually like Bishop's Wife, I've been watching. We've been watching on Christmas Eve, um, but usually Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, I will watch at some point. And uh, yeah, in fact, I've watched it now on December seventeenth, and I'm talking about it. So, um, uh, yeah, it's great, 
great special. I just want to mention, and now I want to mention, and I'm going to wrap it up, everyone. I know this is going longer than I expected. The A Special Sesame Street Christmas. So, A Special Sesame Street Christmas aired December 8, 1978, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on CBS. Thank you, Wikipedia. Preempting Wonder Woman, starring Leslie Uggams, who was a... Um, uh, uh, singer uh, star shoes in roots she had her own variety show she's very peppy she's very big smile all the time like hey i'm leslie uggams aren't we having a great time and the implication in the the episode is that leslie uggams is a great fan of everyone on sesame street and um uh we have uh, i think it's um in the special we got mr hooper david bob maria and we have Oscar, Big Bird, and Barkley the Dog. Barkley the Dog shows up at the beginning, shows up at the end. The main premise of the special is that Leslie Uggams doesn't like how grouchy Oscar is and tries to do a Christmas Carol kind of thing using her friends. Um, Tom's, uh, was it Dick Smothers? Or, I forget, one of the Smothers brothers. I've completely forgotten now. Um, I want to say Dick Smothers. Um Dick's that, sorry that sounds like a that sounds like that sounds like a snuff film star doesn't it I'm sorry about that um uh and and Imogen Coca and and Ethel Merman and um Henry Fonda shows up briefly Michael Jackson it's funny on the on the DVD Michael Jackson is like starring Michael Jackson Michael Jackson is in it for about a minute minute and a half and he he walks by Oscar he's reading a book and the book is like everything you always want to know about ghosts we're afraid to ask and he gives the copy to Oscar and leaves and that's all he does and like Henry Fonda uh, basically steps out on the balcony in the back of the set says a couple of lines and that's it and Imogene Coca shows up as the ghost the Christmas whatever and then uh, uh, Anne Murray shows up and sings it's funny Anne Murray's <laughs> okay well let, let me just yeah so the basic premise is she's trying to make and in the end and in the end, with the help of a little kitten who has a, a damaged leg named Tiny, they call Tiny Tim, who looks terrified throughout, Oscar suddenly becomes a nice grouch. Um, actually, I was going to say, actually, I'm, mix, I'm mixing up my specials. In the He-Man She-Ra Christmas special, Skeletor is nice at Christmas. And at the end, he says to He-Man and She-Ra that this is awful. He, he doesn't like feel, being nice. And She-Ra says something like, don't worry, it's only once a year. And he's like, oh, thank goodness. And I feel like this in the same way with Oscar. He might be nice at Christmas, but it's just at Christmas. But then he's not really nice at um, in in Christmas Eve. Outside. I mean, it ends with him saying, how does the Easter Bunny deliver all those eggs in one night? Oh, Oscar. Uh, the special is not a children's television workshop special. It was done by, produced by Bob Banner who had done Perry Como Christmas specials and I think had produced some Carol Burnett show. Very much a variety show kind of guy. And he basically hired the use of the set from the children's television workshop and uh, hired on a few of the actors and um, uh, Carol Spinney to do Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch and whoever was in Barkley the Dog and brought on all these guest stars. And it feels very much like a 70s variety show and so your mileage may vary. There's a lot of, like a lot of the 70s variety shows, there's a lot, there are a lot of bad jokes, like just like awful jokes. There are a lot of mediocre songs, unless this, I mean, I mean, I think someone needs to do a podcast just talking about like 70s variety shows. 
Um, whether they're shows that were like every week, like uh, not not Carol Burnett, but like uh, Sonny Cher, Osmond Show, you know, talk about Paul Lind, uh, talk about all the other Christmas specials, talk about Bob Hope Christmas specials, things like that. I wasn't going to talk about a Bob Hope Christmas special here, but I just couldn't get up the energy to do so. But yeah, special Sesame Street Christmas really is Sesame Street. It's the set and some of the actors and Oscars featured in it, but it's really the Leslie Uggams and her friends show. Yeah, Ethel Merman belts out tomorrow. There are a couple moments where you feel like she maybe doesn't remember the lyrics as well as she should. Um, the best line in it is when Ethel Merman sees Imogene Coco and goes, Imogene, why are you dressed like that? You look like an idiot. And that's kind of maybe the mantra for the entire show. It's it's about 50 minutes long. The songs aren't good. The storyline uh, makes no sense. Um, it's it's all ridiculous. It's a little tiresome. It's a little boring. It's a little. It's actually a little embarrassing uh, to watch, and it doesn't feel like a Sesame Street thing at all. It feels like someone hijacked the Sesame Street set to make a mediocre variety show. Oddly enough, it did get nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Children's Program, and it was beaten by Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, as it should have been, because Christmas Eve on Sesame Street is good. There's a reason why people don't really remember a special Sesame Street Christmas, because it's not very good. It Literally, you will watch it, you will, unless you love that type of variety show to pieces, you will watch it and think, wow, this is mediocre. And the whole thing basically takes place on the cul-de-sac street set. You know, one thing I do love about Christmas Eve on Sesame Street is the very last shot when Patty and Big Bird are facing away from us looking at the big Christmas tree and the camera pulls back and pulls back. It's a gorgeous shot. And you see a VW bug in the bottom left-hand corner. Look at how it's parked. And if that's meant to be like the edge of the street and the curb, like look at it and think, how is it parked like that? Who parked that? How did that happen? Sorry. But... Yeah, it's just basically, apart from a couple of brief shots of, like, the counter at Mr. Hooper's store, not even the interior of Mr. Hooper's store, just, like, the counter, um, apart from that, it all takes place on the, the set, the big street set, which they presumably rented out for, like, three or four days or something, like a week. Um, and it's just not very good. Like I said, it's it's mediocre, and whenever they break into song, things become tiresome, and... Like whatever the song is that Anne Murray sings to Big Bird and Bob is sort of complete. It's it's a love song that's completely inappropriate for that time and space, and it's one of those sort of soft rock Anne Murray songs from the mid seventies from the well from the seventies that kind of really just it makes me want to forgive me eat a bag of razors. It's just one of those songs you start singing. You're like, oh, you're not gonna. This isn't a Christmas song. Don't sing this. Oh God, and. Yeah, it's not um it's not good. And and I think I think one of the ways you can tell that this is going to be poor is um that something happens that I don't think I ever really saw before in a um in a uh in one uh, that I ever saw one of the Muppets do on purpose. And that is that on more than one occasion Carol Spinney doing Oscar Oscar's voice and such messes up a line you know it's like okay Leslie well Christmas is well if we're gonna and he'll just like stumble over a line and you're like whoa I don't I don't think I've ever seen one of the Muppets stumble over a line unless it was part of something like unless they were nervous and they did it I don't think I've ever seen a Muppet flub a line before 
And there's something about the moment Oscar, like within the first five minutes or so, Oscar flubs the line and has to repeat it and they don't cut that out. You think, okay, this is going to be chintzy. And it is chintzy and it just gets worse. And I I recommend maybe watching it once. Just uh, maybe I don't recommend watching it once. If you like 70s variety shows, watch it once. But it's not a fun one like the Paul Lynn Christmas special or some of the Brady Bunch variety hours. It's just kind of painful to watch. And like I said, it's it's I just found it dull and it's it's not good. Leslie Uggams is doing her best. But um I read a couple of reviews of it and someone points something out, which I noticed um when I kind of went back into just a, a review of it, that Leslie Uggams is really into it. But a couple of the scenes where she's part of a group or she's like in the background, look at her and she looks kind of bored or like, oh God, when is this? When do I take center stage again? Which is kind of fun to watch. So not not le- meaning to leave on a down note. Yeah, special Sesame Street Christmas, thumbs down. But Christmas Eve on Sesame Street is a joy. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. The, the, the fun of it is they're not there to teach you. They're not there to teach you the alphabet. You know, they're not there to teach you... Um, you know, uh, numbers or anything like that. It's meant to expand the show. It's it's meant to make it more of a big kind of universe kind of thing. You know, it's like no longer do you walk down onto the Sesame Street cul. You know, no longer like in New York City and you take a wrong turn and suddenly you're on the Sesame Street cul-de-sac and you stand in the middle of the street and you're thinking someone's going to teach me the way numbers work or something like that. You know, someone's about to teach me my ABCs. No, it's 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 a world now and it's fantastic. And I think it still really holds up because um, the songs are pretty timeless. And I mean, apart from the, the on ice stuff in the first 15 minutes, which is very 70s into the 80s, um, it's just a, it's just a fun time. So I talked for a lot longer than I thought I would, but I do love Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So happy holidays to all of you out there. Merry Christmas to those of you that celebrate it. And um, I hope you'll be back for 2024. I'm wrapping up the episode here. Uh, we will return in the first half of February, and that episode will cover what is it? Monster Squad episode 11, the first episode of a brand new old show, and not Max Headroom because um, I take a episode off in between seasons. So the second episode of 2024, Max Headroom and Tim S. Turner will return with season two of Max. But uh, be good to yourselves, everyone. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And Avengers Super Train will return in February of 2024. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light.